fifth reading is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8, and verses 17 to 18. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. This is God's word. A church can't be great at everything, right? And so you come to grips with that because you realize we're not, we're not a building, we're people, right? And Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 tells us that God puts gifts within a church. And so those gifts form who we are. We're the local expression regionally of what God wants to do in any given geographical area. And so what that means is sometimes God will put a certain collection of gifts in a church and you'll see things blow up in such a way where uh, that church just kind of leads the pack around the world in a particular area. This happened in the late 60s and early 70s at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck Smith was the founder of that church, struggled for years, 17 years as a bivocational pastor, and then God gave he and his wife a heart to reach hippies, and they became the center of what we know now as the Jesus Movement. And these young hippies were coming in, many of them were, had a background in music and such, and all of a sudden they birthed, literally birthed, what we do right here, Sunday morning, contemporary worship. It just spread throughout the church. Now, in our day, it's Hillsong and Bethel. Most of our music's coming out of some of these great churches because God's put a great collection of gifts there. And sometimes God just wants to say, hey, this is what I can do. Some churches have great leadership gifts. Some churches have great preaching and teaching gifts in one place, great compassion gifts, and usually those churches are leading the way. I was in a conversation with a woman at the baptism of Coastal Christian in Ocean City. And she was raving about her husband who was now involved in church because they have a ministry on Saturday called Men in Service. And what they have is 40 guys show up. Think about this, at a resort area, 40 guys show up on a Saturday and they descend on one person's home or one place uh, to kind of help single moms or whatever do what they can't do. It's just a phenomenal ministry. And she said, as wonderful as that is, and I'm so glad my husband's involved, she goes, I just wish the women had something like this. And I said, let me tell you a little backstory, because I know the leader of men in service. I know his passion, I know his giftedness, I know the time he's put in. I knew when that ministry was three guys on a Saturday. And what I was basically telling her is, we're not Wegmans, we're not Costco. We don't open our doors and have all these ministries that everybody can partake of. Usually if we have a ministry... There's a minister. 
There's somebody with a heartbeat and a passion, and then God surrounds them, and then it grows. So here at our church, Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, we're going to be great at some things, good at some things, and we're going to struggle at some other things, and it's all going to depend upon the gifts God puts in our church. But as I read Hebrews chapter 13, these final reminders, this epilogue, I see four things that every church and every Christian must be great at. These are non-negotiables. This isn't about gifting. It's not about passion. This is something God requires of every church and every believer and everyone sitting in this room. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through the four things every Christian and every church must be great at. Are you guys ready? Drum roll, number one. The first thing every church must be great at is hospitality. Boy, that's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? That's not what you wanted to hear. You wanted to hear gifts of the Spirit. You wanted to hear prayer. You wanted to hear so many things. Hospitality. The guys are thinking, isn't that something the ladies do? Isn't that like tea and doilies and cookies and Martha Stewart type of things? Verse 1 in chapter 13 says, let brotherly love continue. I don't know if you know this, but you know the banner over the church in its inception was love? Hard to imagine, isn't it? Jesus said, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples, your love for one another. And then he did something radical. He washed their feet. Andrew Murray said, the command of our text reminds us how love may wax cold and how it may sadly be waning in the church, every church. In divisions and separations and indifference and neglect, in harsh judgments and unloving thoughts, alas, how little has Christ's church proved that it has its birth from the God of love, that it owes all to him who loved us, gave us to the new commandment of love, and asked us to prove our love to him by bestowing it on our brethren. We know it can wax cold because in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is doling out compliments to the church, he starts with Ephesus, the mega church of the day. And he said, everything you're doing is great. Everything. But one little cleanup you need is the motivation. You as a church, as a people, have lost your first love. You lost the motivation of why you do anything you do. And for that church, and for any church, it is love. Now let me say this. The gospel is very practical. I know we want it to be esoteric. I know we love revelations and cool ideas and all that. But at the end of the day, the Bible is super practical. For every doctrine, there's a duty. For every revelation and responsibility. What does that mean? Well, in the book of James, where we're headed in a few weeks, James is going to say something very profound. He's going to say, how can you say you love God who you can't see and don't love your neighbor who you can see, who's made in the image of God. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church, right? That's very practical, isn't it? In other words, there, there's a revelation of the love of God. I can sit on a park bench and know that God loves me, and I love him, but at the end of the day, it has to be expressed for those people that I meet. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, you know, we can give all our money and we can prophesy and get a spiritual gifts. And at the end of the day, if it's not done in love, then it's all for naught. I like what my pastor used to say. It takes more Holy Spirit to wash the dishes than to speak in tongues. Okay? And that's about how practical the gospel gets. 
Now, let brotherly love continue. Now, look, we're in the Philadelphia area. The city of brotherly love, we know what it means. The phileo, the Greek word, means the kindness. It's, it's an affectionate love. It's not eros. It's not sexual. It's not even agape. It's not even the love of God. This is just the affection and the kindness that we should show towards one another. Now, let me tell you this. This is steeped in the Old Testament. The Jews birthed us, right? Jesus was a Jew. And so much of what Jesus taught had Jewish thought in it from the Old Testament. And when God brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land, they, they were given many instructions. They were given the law. But in Deuteronomy, which is the second reading of the law, there's one small sentence there where Moses tells the people, he says, therefore love the stranger, and here's why, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You're not going to retaliate against these people. You're not going to look down on people. In fact, you're going to take your history, you are a stranger, and you're going to love the stranger. Now, it opens up this idea of what we call the hesed, H-E-S-E-D, Hebrew, the kindness of God. Shalom, the peace of God. It's through the Old Testament hundreds of times where God loves the orphan, the father, the widow. Right before Moses gives this command, it says, the Lord your God is God of gods, and he's Lord of lords. He's the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, because God is this way, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This was built in the hearts of God's people for centuries. And now the writer of Hebrews comes along and he said, here's a final reminder, let the kindness of God continue. Now how do I know this is what he's talking about? Look at verse two. Everybody knows this verse. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, I remember in the 70s, people told stories like, oh, I picked up a hitchhiker. And then when I let him out, I looked in the rearview mirror and he was gone. And there was all this talk about angels, right? And people looked at this verse and said, I know what I'll do. I'll have a stranger over, somebody at church I don't know, and then I'll see an angel. Problem is, you wouldn't know it. It says you would do it unaware. Okay, so that's not the motivation. Who is the stranger you're inviting? Is it someone next to you in church you don't know? Can be. But if we really look at the Old Testament and take it a step down, we're actually looking at a social justice issue here. What the Bible's saying is every church must be great at social justice. How do I know? Because the next verse says, remember prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you are all in one body. Now, God told Israel to love the stranger because they were strangers. So when they were in Egypt, they were strangers. Who were they? They were immigrants. Remember, Joseph went down there, right? Found favor with Pharaoh and he brought his family down 70. They were immigrants. They were the minority. They were different from the Egyptians. They were mistreated, persecuted, marginalized, misunderstood, had limited rights. Any of this sound like something we might be living through? 
Israel was called, and now the church, to bring equity to these type of situations. Uh, the Greek word for stranger is everything I just told you. It means that foreigners, strangers, immigrants, refugees, should all experience the kindness that we reap from the love of God and what's in our hearts. Now, the last thing I want to do is politicize any of this this morning because that's what the dominant culture does. That's all it can do. As the church, we're called to do what only we can do. Now, we just sent backpacks to the Bronx, and that's a wonderful thing, but can I tell you this? TD Bank collects backpacks. But what is it that only the church can do? Only the church, transformed by Jesus Christ, can offer the hesed and kindness of God to others when we understand the motivation for what Christ has done for us. Now, the verse there said that we should understand prisoners as though they were, we were chained with them. Um, Whenever we do Compassion Weekend, if you've, ever been, if you've been in our church for a while, every October we take one grand issue when we talk about it at great length. But we always hand out a card that says, learn, think, do. So when we hit these really murky areas where there's so much going on on both sides, we always say that we should learn all we can learn. So when it comes to racial tension, one of the things I do is I read one book every year on race and ethnicity in our culture. Not just black and white, but Asian and, and all those things. And uh, I read it not from a Christian perspective, I read it from the minority's perspective. I want to learn, I want to think. Somewhere along the line I have to do. I have colleagues around the country, I talk about these things. And again, we don't want to politicize it. What we're trying to do is say, God, what is our part in all this? I know one thing we can't do. The one thing we can't do is say, all the errors happened hundreds of years ago. I didn't live then. I'm off the hook. I know that can't be true because the writer's saying, you gotta, you got to get into the prisoner's world. You have to understand what it's like. You have to understand the tension and, and how it is, especially if you're not one of these people. So as a white male, I don't know what it's like to be stopped as an African-American by a cop. But i got to figure it out. And then i got to pray to God, what's my part? If you think you don't have a responsibility, think about Daniel and Nehemiah. Neither one of them were raised in Jerusalem. They were raised in captivity. Excuse me, Daniel was, but he was 16 years old. But both of them break down sobbing in prayer. And you know what they do? They confess their sin and the sins of their fathers. In other words, God, this has come upon all of us. What's the part we can play? I think the mandate here is that every Christian must ask themselves that question. Now, at the end of the day, Galatians 3.28, this is what we know. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's not male or female. You're all one in Jesus. In the new community, when we gather, all those distinctions are gone. But doesn't mean they're still not real. I've been reading a book called Charity Detox, and I've been reading on how we do missions in the evangelical church. And the way we do missions in the evangelical church, and we do it here, is we ask people to raise support. 
uh, some people that we know raise their own support. And what we're finding is raising your own support works if you are evangelical, middle class, or higher. Do you realize most minorities don't have the bandwidth of people with resources to raise their support, yet we have made that like the model? And so it can't just be we're all one in Christ. We've got to look at these issues and we've got to understand them. And the beauty is we have the motivation. Uh, we have the motivation that comes from God. It says entertain strangers. In other words, have the heart to entertain new people, people that don't look like you, people that uh, don't do the things that you do. Have the heart and the attitude to engage these people and you might entertain angels unaware. What's the writer saying? Almost every scholar agrees. This is Genesis 18 and 19. This is where the day before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot invited two men into his house. They were angels. The people of the community came and they wanted to have sexual relations with these guys and Lot said, no way. Now he offered his daughter, that wasn't a good thing. But he protected these people and he gave them the hesed and the kindness and hospitality of God. And we find out in the text, Lot didn't know this, he was unaware. This was the angel of the Lord. This is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. What it means is when you take in guests, you take in the Lord. Proverbs says, he who lends to the Lord lends to God. I'm in a basketball league on Monday nights. And uh, there's a guy at my club who's all tatted up, right? Tatted up, low pants, like just a guy I wouldn't be around. So he and I kind of struck up a relationship, kind of a joking relationship. We talked about sports and things. And then I drafted him on my team. I think I shared this with you before. And when I drafted him, he was so excited. And he, his, his girlfriend was saying, uh, read out the list of who's on your team. And he's going through the list. And he mentioned my name. And his girlfriend said, oh my gosh, that's my pastor. And he called me on the phone. He said, dude, you're an effing pastor? He goes, I can't believe you're an effing pastor. And he looked at his girlfriend and he goes, oh my gosh, he's an effing pastor. And uh, about a year went by and, you know, we would talk about God and talk about things. And we kept saying, yeah, I'll go out to, you know, we'll go out after games, but games were late. Finally, we went out. We went out after a game. And here's a guy at the club who's cool and he's tatted up and He's got the rims and the shiny car. And I said, so how's life working out? He goes, how's life working out? He's like, when I get up in the morning, I think, should I go through this again or should I put the Glock in my mouth? And I'm like, oh my goodness gracious. And all of a sudden you realize, wow. Wow, life isn't really turning out the way people think it should. He lives in the heart of Delaware County. His kids don't go to the schools my kids go to. He doesn't hang around the people I hang around with. And yet I think God's saying, would each and every one of us step over a racial, ethnic, socioeconomic divide and show the kindness and hospitality of God? Guys, here's the motivation. Ephesians 2 says, therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, 
which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and here's our word, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, one day God stepped over a divide and called out to you, and you've been brought in. We were strangers, we were foreigners. Can you imagine how effective our church would be if every one of us looked out for strangers, people that were different, people that were new. I was in the cafe the other day and I heard a lady with an English accent and I thought, well, I've been to London a couple times and I meandered over to her table and she was with another woman, spent 20 minutes there, found out both her husbands died of cancer within the same year. Spent 20 minutes talking to them. Could have gone over to my golf buddies and people that I know, just kind of me. What if, what if everybody? Now do you understand why Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together? Church isn't a podcast. It's not a video. It's a real dynamic where we engage with real people. Hospitality does include coffee with a friend, dinner out. Inviting somebody over your house. Some of you with a gift of hospitality, and that gift is in 1 Corinthians, can be ushers, greeters, work at the table, work in children's ministry. All those things are necessary if we're going to be a vibrant, thriving church. Guys, we got to be great at this. It's non-negotiable. Second thing we have to be great at is community. Now this is... Geez, I hate talking about this because now it's a buzzword. Community is something Jesus offered and is taught through the New Testament, and now it's a buzzword in our world, right? I was driving yesterday. My daughter bought a house, and I was moving and her, and I was driving with a buddy in the car, and we saw about 30 people on bikes at a traffic light, and they're in full regalia, right? The helmet. They look like they were in the Tour de France, right? And I looked over there, and we looked at each other like, how do people get into this? Like, buy all the gear, set up the time. Uh, at the end of the day, isn't it just a bike and you're riding through Aston? Like, I, I don't get it, right? It's just me. And then we looked at each other and said, it's all about community. It's the same reason people tailgate in an Eagles game or do anything anybody does. People were meant to be with one another. Uh, this is why people in a church like ours say, I wish I was in a smaller church. I know more people. What you don't know is people in a small church are saying, I wish our church was bigger so I could know more people. I was at a member guest at a golf club one time and I was talking to a gentleman who told me he had just switched from one club to this particular club. And I said, well, why did you switch? He said, I couldn't make any friends at the other club. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's probably going to follow you here, right? What are the verses about Community. Strange. Look at verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. For God said, I will never leave you, forsake you, and the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Uh, how in the world is this talking about community? Nothing builds or breaks community more than relationships and money. In a broad sense, your money, your time, your relationships 
really aren't about you if you're a believer. They really aren't. Now, here's the problem, and I'm in the same boat. We are the product of Western culture, the Enlightenment. Uh, do you know what the rest of the world, they did a study on this, by the way. When the, when the rest of the world looks at America, what symbol do you think they have chosen for us? Anybody know? No. The Marlboro Man. The Marlboro Man. Do you know why? The rogue, lone ranger, cowboy who can conquer everything. The individual. Western Enlightenment thinking, of which America is a part of, is that the, the needs of the one are greater than the needs of all. Now, when you read your Bible, the reason you have conflicts in the Old Testament is you don't understand Eastern thought or how the rest of the world lived for its history until probably the 15th or 16th century. The Enlightenment and, and what we see in America changed everything. So now when we talk about money, money's mine, guess what else is mine? Sexuality, right? So in the dominant culture, sexuality is nobody's business but mine, to which my argument is, then why have you made it public and why have you politicized it? <laughs> Just kind of a common sense insight from me. The reason why marriage is brought up here is because marriage was God's idea. God invented it. Study anthropology, study world cultures. God invented marriage. When I say marriage, Jesus said in the beginning, yes, there was a beginning. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, Genesis 2.18, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. Marriage, biblically, in God's idea, was one man for one woman not saying they love each other, but making vows till death do they part. Now, I've said this before, marriage is the only system where everybody wins. Now, some of you think you have a soulmate today, some of you think you have a cellmate, right? Probably all over the board, okay? Wherever you are in that drill, all right, it is still the only thing where everybody wins. Doesn't mean everybody gets what they want or their way, just means everybody wins. If every child could be raised looking at one mom and one dad, it would be a beautiful thing. And I say that as somebody whose both parents had three husbands and wives, all right? I'm just saying God invented the best system. It was the genius of God, and this is what he gave us. Now, we're fallen, I get that, I understand. Now, in the context of what we're dealing with in our culture, Look what the scripture says. The marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Who are fornicators and who are adulterers? Anyone outside of what I just described. It's that simple. Anyone out of what I just described. Now again, there's a lot of sub-issues here. and There's a lot of things we could talk about. Here's what disturbs me. Uh, there's a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Con uh, Conscience uh, where, the, where the writer writes this when it comes to marriage. He said evangel evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral 
as the general population. Now, I choose not to believe that. I really do. And he gives all the statistics. I, I just choose not to believe it because it, it, it alters the mind. It alters the mind. The bedrock of community is the family. It's where everything comes from. We'll talk about that in our family series in a bit. Uh, the second thing is money. Showing kindness and hospitality, being who God wants us to be, means that if we're going to live with each other, we're going to live in community, we've got to ask the question, how am I going to use my resources, which, by the way, aren't my own, just like my sexuality is not my own. How are we going to use them for the greater good? How are we going to use them to move God's kingdom forward? Uh, through our Unseen series in Hebrews 11, when we talked about the men and women of faith, um, we showed a series of grander vision videos. Do you all like them? I mean, they were amazing, weren't they? Uh, just regular people, a lot of them 18, 19, 20 years old, who just stepped out and saw God do great things. Uh, there's a girl who works in our cafe who's doing that in Guatemala. I talked to her today. She just got $2,000 more dollars, and she's watching God work on our behalf. She's going to be a grander vision story. I really believe it. Uh, I go to a pool on Monday. I have a standing invitation just to show up at somebody's pool. And I was talking to that woman. Her husband makes a ton of money. And she said, uh, I was talking to her. I said, oh, my wife told me you have a business. And she was just raving about her business. And she said, you know, I don't need the money. So when I started day one with this business, we tied it to World Vision. All the profits go to World Vision. I thought, that's amazing. And she was telling me record profits. Look up on the screen. Um, we decided to do something this year at Sizzling Summer where uh, we said we're going to take an offering. Because a lot of people have shore homes and mountain homes and travel and maybe they're not here on Sunday. So we're going to take offerings on Sizzling Summer, but we're going to give it to all our local and global partners, many of them who minister to the stranger and the alien. House on Beekman in the Bronx, $3,000. Helping Hand Rescue Mission, that's in Northern Liberties, Adam Bruckner, $3,000. Water is basic, Steve Ruiz in the Sudan, $2,000. By the way, Steve Ruiz told me outside of the money we give as a church, there, there are some people in this church who sent him a check for a well that's 10 grand. So there's a lot of soft giving we never see. Walk Our Home, which is a sex trafficking uh, ministry started by somebody in our church, $3,600. City team, you all know about $2,400. The Micah Challenge, $4,433, and that girl that's building dental clinics in Guatemala, $3,000. That's just from Sizzling Summer. All ministering to the stranger, the orphan, people that don't look like us. Third thing every church must be great at is honoring those in authority. Look at verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Skip down to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account, and let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Um, a shepherd, the word is poimen in the Greek, a shepherd has two roles, to feed and to protect. 
So Paul told Timothy, be a workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. So here's what I've learned. Um, you might be mad at me because I don't do your wedding or funeral. I didn't visit you in the hospital. Uh, we don't have services at the times you like it. There's a whole host of reasons you could be mad at me. And that's okay. But if you're ever mad at me because I stopped teaching you the word of God, then we've got big problems, right? My first calling is to feed the flock. Because when we're nourished, when new believers have milk and older believers have a little bit of meat, everybody grows, we find our gifts, we function as a new community. My second job is to protect. Well, this one doesn't have a lot of glamour. Um, years ago, back in our theater days, a gentleman came up to me in his 40s, and he said, I'd like to meet some people here, and he would come up to me after almost every service, and finally he came up and he says, you know what I'm going to do? Here's I'm going to meet people. I'm going to start going to the gathering. Gathering was our young adults ministry, people in their 20s and early 30s. I'm like, no, that's not a good idea. Um, we have a men's ministry. Here's a home fellowship. I gave him a whole host of things to do. He goes, no, I'm, I think I'm going to go to the gathering. I'm like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And then finally I told him, no, you're not going to the gathering where we have women in their 20s. And this caused me at least five years of grief. We got, he sent emails to everyone, everyone in the world, literally. Our secretaries were so scared they were either going to resign or they wanted us to start locking the doors. I had to go to ridiculous meetings. And seriously, it was five years of grief. But that's what we're called to do. Let me give you five, maybe four, four or five reasons why we should pray for those in authority in the church. And I'll do it in less than three minutes. Number one, the job's hard. And I'm not talking about the aptitude. I'm not talking about the requirements. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. I was talking to someone in another state who has been put on the bench for a year. Uh, there was an impropriety in ministry, not grand, but enough to put him on the bench for a year, and then he's going to work his way back. He's still in that local church. Um, so I was calling him. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing construction. I said, how, how are you doing? He goes, I miss ministry really bad. He goes, he goes but i got to say this. Man, uh, my spiritual warfare is like down 5,000%. And I knew exactly what he meant. I've been doing this for 24 years and I have more spiritual warfare on a Sunday morning than I've ever had at any time in the history of this church. The opposition knows the stakes here. This is why leaders need to be prayed for. We have people that pray for us every day. A group of men, a group of women who pray for us because they know the spiritual warfare we face. The other reason that you need to be submissive is, is for your leaders is leaders lift things. Leaders are visionaries. Where there is no vision, people perish. Uh, the third reason, <laughs> this is kind of funny, it says here, um, let them do so with joy and not grief. I used to tell my kids this. Guys, if you follow the rules of the house, great things are going to happen. But if you don't follow the rules, this is going to be a, like a bad place to live. So do you want your leaders joyful, coming in, whistling, and thinking about things, or do you want them stern and beating the sheep? 
I think that's an easy one. Another reason we need to think about our rulers is we're prone to take them for granted. Isaiah, in chapter 6, when King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord, uh, which means he had to see the Lord. For 40 years, Uzziah, Uzziah was king, and he was a good king. And now there's a big gaping hole. Sometimes we don't know what we have until it's gone. I want everybody in this room to think of a leader, pastor, teacher, some leader in the church that inspired you, taught something one day that made your heart come out of your chest. I want you to go back to that place. Can you go back to that place? Can you think of someone who kind of launched you in your faith or took you to another level? If you, if you found that person, could you send them a card, encourage them? You would be surprised how much a card or a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. Because church leaders don't see a finished product. It's not like painting a house or cutting grass where instantly you see the results. It takes years. We're putting a lot of seed in the ground. And it takes many years for them to bloom. The last thing every church should be great at, and we'll work on this till the day it's over. Look at verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Guys, we're gonna sing our hearts out until the day God shuts all this down. You know why? Remember why Hebrews was written. Hebrews was written to say there's a God who speaks. There's a God who longs to communicate with you. There are people of faith who have done great things. But there is such a tendency to shrink back to tradition and works. They wanted to go back and sacrifice animals. And the writer's saying, forget all that. Forget it. It's not about place. It's about when God's people gather, and the only sacrifice is to open your mouth whether things are well with your soul or not well with your soul, and to give God the glory he deserves, and to do it in community. Because that's what we're going to do for the ages to come. And so I love our music here. I love what we do. We're going to get better at it. We're going to do it and do it and do it. Because that's what a worshiping community does. Now, before we do communion, here's how I want to close. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is deep. Hopefully you picked that up. And so he drops on us in these final reminders that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He tells us in verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Then we're told, all these died in faith, Hebrews 11, not receiving the promises, but they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. So here's how I want to end Hebrews. There's three cities we always need to be aware of. The cities we live in, the dominant culture, the culture that's fighting over blue states, red states, and immigration and all that, we live in a reality of that world, that city. But the Bible says there's a city that everybody's looking forward to, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, where all those things will cease and God will make everything right. We live in the tension of two cities, 
the way things are and the way we long them to be, long for them to be. But here's how I want to end. Jesus said something very interesting one day. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the only preservative. And then he said this, you are a city set on a hill. You're a city. For every Christ follower and every community like this, he said we were a city. We were a city between two cities. The way things are and the way we long for them to be, which they'll never be until Christ comes, in my opinion, but we're called right in the middle to make all the difference we can because of what Christ has done for us. That's the beauty of the local church and of Christianity. It's not about rituals, guys. It's not about board meetings and who raised what kind of money and church organization and all this junk. That's man-centered. This is the heartbeat. These are the final reminders. This is what every church has to be great at. You guys up for it? Is this what we long to be?